All right, thank you and good afternoon everyone. Hopefully we're all well fed and watered and everyone had a chance to get to the bathroom because we have a fun-filled two hours ahead of us uh, to discuss pain therapeutics. I like the excitement. We got some woos. Uh, so as you can imagine, this is truly an enormous topic. And two hours, although it sometimes feels like quite a long time, both being up here and being in the audience, I'm sure, um, it's really not enough to cover all that pain therapeutics entails. So, you know, we really did our best to distill this lecture into the need-to-know information, hitting the high points for the, the main pharmacologic classes that we're using to treat pain. And then we're taking solace in the fact that this conference has a great deal and a huge diversity in terms of the programming that's offered throughout the week. So I just wanted to hit some of the high points um, in terms of other course offerings that I thought were pretty cool and related. So there is a ton on medical cannabis and cannabinoids, as I'm sure you've seen, well advertised. There's one on navigating the OTC analgesic aisle, which is pretty cool. One on central sensitization and ketamine which is great, um, pain management specifically in re patients with renal and hepatic dysfunction. So definitely check those out, and we will do our best to cover what we can in the next two hours. Now, we have nothing to disclose. We got nothing. <laughs> this thing is a little bit slow. All right, so... By the end of this presentation, participants should be able to recall the various pharmacologic classes of medications used in pain management to predict which patient populations would be at risk for adverse drug outcomes or adverse drug events based on the patient's comorbidities and known medication effects. So really getting at some of the patient and agent related variables, reviewing current guidelines related to the management of pain, and that's where Jessica is going to take over. So first and foremost, what the heck is pain? I mean, I think we all, we're all here for a reason. We all probably have a pretty good understanding of this, but it's important to know that over the years, there have been many different definitions of pain, one of which, and you know, probably the, the most famous or the most well um, known is the International Association for the Study of Pain or the IASP definition which states that pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. So basically it's a warning sign that something is wrong and it serves as a type of protective mechanism. Another definition that I really like and have called upon over the years is by Margot McCaffrey. She was a nurse and a pioneer in the field of pain management nursing and she says that pain is whatever the experiencing person says it is experiencing whenever and wherever the person says it does. So I think this definition is really, really important because it gets at the subjective nature of pain. So one person seven is not going to be another person seven and pain is certainly not one size fits all. So I think that definition, although pretty brief and succinct, really gets at the heart of, of what pain truly is. Um, in terms of the pathophysiology itself, pain can be broken down into nociceptive and neuropathic pain. So nociceptive pain arises from an actual or threatened damage to non-neural tissue and is due to the activation of nociceptors. 
and nociceptive pain can further be, bro further be broken down into visceral and somatic pain versus neuropathic pain, which is caused by an actual lesion or disease of the somatosensory nervous system. <clears throat> this little clicker is a little bit behind. So in terms of duration and the time intensity, pain can be classified as being either acute or chronic. So acute pain tends to occur pretty suddenly due to some sort of illness, injury, surgery, essentially some sort of inciting event. Usually is short-lived and resolves as whatever that acute inciting event is heals. It tends to serve a useful biologic purpose. It allows the body time to heal. It tells us to take it easy while that's happening so as not to further injure ourselves. So what are some examples of acute pain? Feel free to shout them out. Surgery. Surgery is a great one. Sprain, strain, some sort of trauma, getting your wisdom teeth pulled. So something acute that has happened, either an injury, an illness. Great. Chronic pain, on the other hand, is pain that lasts or persists beyond the expected normal healing period. So, you know, it's thought, you know, beyond the normal healing period or longer than three months, essentially. You can imagine when pain is persisting to that, you know, extent of time, that this is really where our patient's quality of life is being affected here. It's affecting their activities of daily living, often their ability to work, take care of their kids, whatever their responsibilities may be, it is persisting beyond the normal healing period. It's frequently, and you know, this is where many of us come in, it's frequently caused by inadequately treated acute pain. So if we're advocating for, you know, successful treatment of acute pain, hopefully less patients will transition to chronic pain. Now that's not fail safe, but it is certainly a good start in preventing our patients from developing and going down that chronic pain path. Um, it's why we, it's so important that we do such a good job on the front end. And unlike acute pain, chronic pain really doesn't serve any kind of biologic purpose. And unfortunately for many of our patients, there's really not any kind of recognizable end in sight. Examples of chronic pain, you know, I think probably one of the, the biggest that we see in everyday practice is chronic low back pain, where not a whole lot helps it. It is not really serving any kind of purpose, and it is truly impacting our patients' day-to-day -day lives. Now, this is certainly not a pain pathophysiology course it is a therapeutics course but i do think it is important you know briefly just to mention this so you know imagine we have some sort of injury we hurt our hand we slice it with a knife when we're in the kitchen making dinner so what happens how do we feel pain what is the process that occurs so basically the pain signal that's coming from the site of injury travels up with what's called to or referred to as the ascending pathway, travels up to the brain, and that's ultimately where per the perception of pain occurs. So if we break down these five steps, and if you've met our buddy David Glick, he will argue that modulation is not in fact the fifth step, but believe us, we know, we know what we're talking about here. <laughs> It's really the fifth step. Maybe that needs to be a topic. Yes, this, this could be a topic in and of itself. So if we include it, there are five steps. Transduction, conduction, transmission, perception, and then modulation. 
So transmission is really where the nociceptors transduce that physical stimuli, the injury, whatever it may be, into an electrical signal. Conduction is where the action potential moves along the neurons, and this is where the pain fibers come into play. So our C fibers, which are small, unmyelinated, kind of slow conducting, they transmit dull, poorly localized pain, like the burning and aching types of pain. Our A-delta fibers, which are larger, myelinated, and faster conducting, which transmit well-localized, sharper types of pain. And then our A-beta fibers, which are also rapidly conducting, but they're mainly concerned with non-noxious stimuli. Transmission, this is kind of the passing of the torch. That's how I learned it, that's how I think about it. Um, and it occurs when the nociceptor communicates with the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, the spinal cord communicates with the brainstem, and the, or the brainstem and the thalamus, and then ultimately when the thalamus communicates with the cerebral cortex, resulting in perception and then finally modulation. Perception is the interaction between those various brain components responsible for what it sounds like, the perception of pain. So our sensation, the autonomic nervous system response, motor response, our emotions to pain. So that's what's telling us to cry when we slice our hand. Um, stress and behavior. And then finally, modulation is really important in the reduction of the pain signal, allowing for some sort of function to remain while our bodies are healing and helps to adjust that overall pain intensity. And I love this little cartoon. Buckle up, we're going to go as fast as an action potential in an A-beta nerve fiber. Oh really, I doubt this old thing can go as fast as an action potential in a C nerve fiber. <laughs> little nerd humor for everyone. <coughs> and if you are more of a visual learner, really this is just showing the pain pathway in, you know, an imagery. Same with this, showing some of the noxious factors that can stimulate the nociceptors. <clears throat> All right. So getting to the pain assessment, which really forms the cornerstone of the therapeutic alliance between the healthcare provider and the patient. This is truly the most important part, I believe. It's how we know how the heck to treat the patient, how we monitor them over time, and what helps build the relationship between the patient and the provider. So, you know, a patient gets to tell us their story, how their pain is impacting their life, um, the healthcare provider tries to characterize the pain, infer the etiology, and develop a treatment plan based on that pain assessment. So it's really important, again, that we do a jo good job on the front end, hopefully preventing that transition into chronic pain. And really, this starts with selecting an appropriate pain assessment tool. We know there are numerous validated pain assessment tools in the literature. Some are unidimensional, like the numeric rating scale, which is probably the most ubiquitous. How would you rate your pain on a scale from zero to 10, with zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain you can possibly imagine? Um, if you were in our session earlier, we talked a little bit about this. I think it's very important how you describe this pain scale to patients. And we have four fellows in our um, Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship, and as smart as they are, they'll still say 10 is the worst pain you've ever experienced, and sometimes they'll start the pain scale at one. And I'm like, well, what if the patient doesn't have any pain at all? And they're like, hmm, 
So definitely zero to 10. I have heard it described as, you know, well, and it's, it's often, sorry guys, it's often a male saying this, but they'll say, um, well, a 10 is something like childbirth. And given that I am pregnant, I take offense to that. Uh, so it's very traumatic. A 10 yeah. is pregnancy. You know all about this. You have kids. So <laughs> other pain skills, which I think do the job a little bit better. I'm not knocking the unidimensional pain skills, but the multidimensional pain skills get at more. So we know that total pain is a thing. We know there are multiple dimensions of pain. Pain impacts various factors in a patient's life. So some, you know, they assess more than one element. So some of these include the brief pain inventory, um, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not so brief, um, but it definitely includes more than the unidimensional pain scales. So how do we decide which pain assessment tool to use? Because we know this is certainly not a case of one size fits all. So, you know, for instance, would the numeric rating scale be appropriate in our very cognitively impaired patients? No, not so much. Sometimes, you know, and I see it being documented in the EMR, a patient with end-stage dementia is rating their pain a 6. And I'm like, they're not talking, so how are they rating their pain a 6? Um, it's just not possible. If they are still able to converse, they're cognitively impaired, sometimes they're able to say, you know, mild, moderate, severe, um, or some sort of grouping that is a little less cumbersome and requires less executive function than the zero to 10 scale. Um, We know we have the pain AD, we have a ton of different pain, the Wong Baker and kids. So choosing an appropriate pain assessment tool is very important. We need to take into account factors such as their age, their verbal ability, their cognitive ability, you know, are they vision impaired, things like that? Are they not able to see the darn scale that we're giving them? So just really taking into account these patient-specific factors. And consistency is key. So sometimes I'll see one pain scale used one time on another subsequent visit, they're using something different. And that's not really helpful in tracking the patient's pain over time. So choosing one and sticking with it, certainly if you chose the wrong one the first time around, by all means, choose the right one. But allowing yourself to see the progression over time is really important, both for you and for the patient. And of course, there is this three-level pain scale. Pain, excruciating pain, and stepping on a Lego. Which, for those of you who have experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. All right, so we've done our thorough pain assessment, and we think we've nailed down the patient's pain. What now? What tools do we have in our pain armamentarium, so to speak? So first and foremost, we have our non-pharmacologic therapies. And the pain guidelines are really kind of going gangbusters on the non-pharm recs amidst the opioid crisis. The only problem is that a lot of these things, as great as they are, A, there's, on some of them, not a whole lot of literature to support their use or data, and two, they're not covered by insurance. So our patients are having to pay out of pocket for a lot of these things that while they may be benefiting them greatly, 
it's not financially sustainable for them, which is a real shame when we're looking for alternatives to some of our pharmacologic strategies. So, you know, what are some of our options here? And there, this is really not the focus of this talk, but I do believe in an integrated approach to pain management, so I do think it's important to at least mention some of them. So we have temperature therapy, so our hot packs, cold packs, heating pads, um, thermocare wraps, all of the above, uh, massage, physical therapy, occupational therapy. Uh, we have our TENS units, our transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation units, spinal cord stimulators, relaxation and guided imagery, music therapy, which I have seen in the hospice arena, truly work wonders. I mean, you will have a patient that is contracted and grimacing and in terrible, terrible pain that you have been unable to otherwise relieve. And they start playing the harp or the guitar or whatever it is, and you can see them physically relax. And it's pretty remarkable and something that, you know, you really need to see to believe, but it is truly is that. Um, biofeedback, meditation, and self-hypnosis. So meditation, the, the great thing about a lot of these things is that it puts the um, control back in the patient's hands. So with meditation, you know, there are a lot of great apps. Um, the ones I've used are the Calm app. That's probably the one I've used the most. There's one called Breathe. There's one called Headspace. And I think if I remember correctly, Headspace has like a 30-session um, pain management-specific med guided meditation package, which is pretty cool. I don't know if you have to pay for that one or not, but um, definitely something to consider, something the patient can, if they, as long as they have their phone or you know, device, they can do that anywhere. Um, acupuncture, acupressure, something I have seen pretty good effect with. Again, whether or not it is covered is another story. And then distraction. So however the patient, you know, activities they enjoy doing, whether it's watching TV or knitting or whatever it may be, just something to get their mind off of the pain. Now getting to the bread and butter of this presentation, which is really the discussion of the various medication classes that we have available to treat pain. So what do we have on the menu here? We have our non-opioid analgesics, so acetaminophen and the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which is what we'll be starting uh, this presentation with. And of course, we have our good friends, the opioids. We have antidepressants and anticonvulsants, local anesthetics like lidocaine, skeletal muscle relaxants, capsaicin, and then kind of a, a catch-all of everything else, the miscellaneous agents. And I would be remiss if I didn't re uh, mention the cannabinoids here as well, and they kind of fit in the miscellaneous category. So acetaminophen, you know, this is a drug that has been around, I think it was approved in something like 1960, and we're still not really sure how the heck it works. So we know that it's thought to be a partial COX inhibitor, selectively inhibiting COX-2. We know it reduces prostaglandins in the CNS, but you know, inhibiting endogenous pyrogens, but not really in the periphery. We, speaking of the cannabinoids, we know it interacts with the endocannabinoid system. It reduces the nitric oxide pathway and it increases the pain threshold. So 
really a whole host of synergistic effects that result in the mechanism of acetaminophen, which is pretty interesting. Um, in terms of adverse effects, at recommended daily doses, acetaminophen is pretty fairly well tolerated. Um, but of course, you know, and because it is well tolerated, it doesn't have the cardiovascular, GI, and renal adverse effects of the NSAIDs. Uh, it's really the preferred analgesic for mild to moderate pain, especially in the elderly um, or in our patients with a lot of comorbidities that would preclude them from using an NSAID as long as there's not an inflammatory component to the pain. Because we know, as APAP stands for, not really, but anti-pain, antipyretic. So it doesn't cover anti-inflammatory like the NSAIDs, but still a good starting point for mild to moderate somatic pain. Um, one important thing to note is that depending on who you ask, the dosing will vary. So per the FDA, the recommended total max daily dose is four grams. Over-the-counter labeling is three grams. Um, depending on the various product or formulation, it can vary. So if it's, you know, the Tylenol arthritis or... Um, the max strength, the 500 milligram, that'll be a little bit different versus if it's the 325. So you figure Tylenol or acetaminophen is found in something like 600 prescription and over-the-counter products. So it's not really all that surprising that it is one of the leading causes of acute liver failure when taken in doses that are beyond the recommended max daily dose. Because you figure, you know, a patient is getting Percocet or Vicodin, some kind of combination, oxycodone, hydrocodone, acetaminophen product. They're also, you know, taking, as they always have, their, their acetaminophen arthritis product over the counter. And then they, you know, have a fever or a cold and they take Dayquil and then bang, they're over that four gram limit. So really, really important to tell your patients to always read the labeling. And studies have shown that up to 50% of patients don't read the labeling of their over-the-counter products. So that is pretty darn scary when you think about it. And when you think about what it could result in, in terms of acute liver failure. So this is no small risk. So the basis of acute liver failure, how that occurs, is really explained by its metabolism. So acetaminophen is metabolized by the liver. It's a saturable process. So the majority is metabolized. So it's metabolized by three pathways, the majority of which is glucuronidation and sulfation and the liver and the kidneys to a lesser degree, um, really the liver. And then the rest is metabolized through N-hydroxylation to form this toxic intermediate, affectionately known as NAPKI. So N-acetyl-P-benzoquinone amine. You wonder why it's called NAPKI, so quite a mouthful. Um, and normally, you know, it's this highly reactive intermediate, and it usually is combined with glutathione and then excreted, no harm, no foul. Um, it's kind of like Pac-Man. The glutathione goes around getting all of the napki, and then it's excreted, and we don't know otherwise. But with large acetaminophen ingestion, the pathways become saturated and the glutathione stores are depleted. And napki concentrations increase 
binding to tissues and resulting in cell necrosis. So this is how acute liver failure happens. We also have to be wary. It's not only in acute, you know, cases of acute ingestion, but cases where glutathione stores are depleted. So in our chronic alcohol users, in patients who are chronically malnourished, glutathione stores can be depleted. So just taking that into account as well, that it's not just an acute overdose type of situation, but it can be over time as well. Moving on to the NSAIDs. So we know how the NSAIDs work. They competitively inhibit the cyclooxygenase or the COX enzymes, preventing that conversion of arachidonic acid to prostaglandin, prostacyclin, and thromboxane, which are responsible for pain and inflammation, yes, but also for a variety of beneficial effects. So things like gastroprotection and maintaining renal blood flow, hence some of the adverse effects that we see. So there are two COX isoforms. Uh, apparently there is a third, which is present in dogs only. Uh, but we have COX-1 and COX-2. So COX-1 is variably expressed in most tissues throughout the body. It's considered a kind of housekeeping enzyme. It's involved in a ton of different, you know, regulating normal cellular processes, gastric cytoprotection, vascular homeostasis, uh, platelet aggregation, and kidney function. Versus COX-2, which is expressed constitutively in places like the brain, the kidney, bone, and in the female reproductive system, and importantly, is expressed during other sites in times of inflammation. And while the NSAIDs are certainly effective drugs, we know they work well for inflammatory pain, there are certain patient populations that should generally avoid or limit the use of NSAIDs altogether. So some of these being our patients on anticoagulants, patients with severe renal dysfunction, certainly our pregnant patients, um, patients with cardiovascular disease, the list goes on and on. NSAIDs can be classified based on their relative COX selectivity, and I say relative because all NSAIDs inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2 to some degree, regardless of their labeling as being COX-2 selective. Um, so what we're really talking about, again, is the relative degree to which they inhibit these two COX isoforms. The main takeaway from this slide is really that the more COX-2 selective the drug, the greater the risk for cardiovascular events. And while those that are more COX-1 selective, we see more GI-related complications. But again, we have seen that all non-steroidals across the board can result in all of these adverse effects, GI, renal, and cardiovascular. So it's a relative safety. Now, when it comes to these NSAID-related adverse effects, as I've mentioned, we know the biggies are really gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, and renal. So this slide depicts the relative risk of these serious complications for both low-medium, as one category dosing, and high-dose NSAIDs. The yellow box on the bottom shows the relative cutoffs um, for these different categories, so for the low-medium dosing. Um, and you can see that really, either way you cut it, the NSAIDs increase the relative risk of all three complications. And important to note that the risk is dose dependent. So 
we can see, you know, it is dose dependent. It is duration dependent for most of them, but the risk can be evident even within the first week of use. So I think, you know, I've, I've heard providers say this. I've heard patients say this. Well, I'm only going to take it for a couple weeks or, you know, I hurt my back. I'm only going to take it for the next month. Well, they're still at risk. So if they have some of, you know, even if they had no other risk factors, they're still at risk for these adverse events. But in our patients that are at, at an even greater risk of experiencing some of these things, I would certainly be very wary. Now this slide um, is showing the risk of GI bleed, perforation, or ulcer versus time. And as you can see here, the risk is high and it stays elevated. So, you know, you can see with one to 14 days, the risk is actually the highest. Not much higher than the 15 to 30 days at 2.9, but it stays elevated. So we cannot really take much solace in saying, well, I'm only going to take it for a couple of days when it comes to the GI-related risks. This was a study, it came from a meta-analysis looking at GI complications that specifically included ulceration, perforation, obstruction, and bleeding from individual NSAIDs, and they included data from 1980 to 2011. And the authors concluded that when taken on a daily basis, all non-selective NSAIDs across the board increased the risk of GI complications. And, you know, the one issue I had with this meta-analysis is that the data wasn't stratified at all based on age or other known risk factors um, affecting drug-related GI complications, but saying that all of them increase the risk. Now, this slide depicts the risk of first-time myocardial infarction, or MI, over time. And you can see here... You know, again, the, the risk is technically the highest with extended duration of use, 61 to 90 days. But you look at the difference between that and 1 to 14 days, and there's not a whole heck of a lot of difference, 1.5 versus 1.4. So really, you know, hammering into our patients and our, our colleagues that this risk is evident within that first week of use and the risk really stays pretty stable and elevated despite you know, the extended duration. Now the one takeaway from this slide is that you know, we think of how many of our patients are taking a baby aspirin daily for cardioprotective purposes. Well, aspirin's cardiovascular protection can be inhibited by the use of ibuprofen. So we need to, and NSAIDs. So doses given between 2 and 12 hours before aspirin administration demonstrated the prevention of aspirin binding to platelets, whereas doses given 2 hours after aspirin did not have this interaction. So giving the aspirin first. Um, indomethacin may have the same interaction. Other NSAIDs may have the interaction, but there's essentially not data to support it. But I would be wary of all of them. Now, in our patients, we know, I've hammered in all of the risks associated with the NSAIDs, but we know they are effective medications for inflammatory types of pain. So the topicals are one potential option we have in our patients that we know would benefit from an NSAID, but we're worried about using a systemic NSAID. 
So the one nice thing, or a few nice things really, but they come in a variety of different formulations. So patches, creams, lotions, gels, etc. The application frequency differs depending on the individual product, but anywhere from two to four times daily. They can provide localized relief at the site of inflammation without the systemic side effects. So these are really good options where the patient has an inflammatory etiology of pain. They can point to where the pain hurts. Um, so for instance, their knees, their elbows, their shoulder, their hip, they can point to where it hurts. Um, and you know, unfortunately, so studies have shown that the serum concentrations, and they were specifically looking at topical diclofenac, are anywhere from 0.4 to 2.2% of the max concentration achieved with oral diclofenac. So you think about that in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly negligible systemic absorption. So I feel pretty confident and safe using these medications in most of my patients. Um, the one thing I will say is that the topical NSAIDs do still contain the black box warning regarding the serious cardiovascular and GI events. And that's really because they haven't done the studies or haven't been willing to fund the studies, which we know are ungodly expensive, to prove otherwise. But when we're looking at the numbers and the systemic absorption, it is pretty low. And of course, cost can be a limiting factor. Um, some of them require prior authorizations or showing that you have failed another line of therapy, um, but they are certainly valuable. Moving on to our corticosteroids. So corticosteroids have several potential mechanisms of action in analgesia. So starting with prostaglandin inhibition, which makes them akin to the NSAIDs, very useful inflammatory types of pain. They are cell membrane stabilizers. They block sodium channels, which makes them useful in neuropathic pain. And they inhibit osteoclastic activity, which makes them useful in bone pain. They are available, again, through multiple routes of administration, orally, parenterally, so IV, given as an intramuscular depot, given intraarticularly. Uh, the list kind of goes on and on with these, and of course, topically as well. Now, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, especially working in the realm of hospice and palliative care, the steroids can be a beautiful thing. But in our patients that do not fall under that umbrella and do not have a life-limiting illness and are going to be around for a while, we really don't want to continue steroids long-term because they have a whole host of side effects and we're increasing our patient's risk for developing some of these things. So sadly, not something we want to continue forever despite their uh, beneficial effects. Some of the potential adverse effects that we can see, weight gain, fluid retention, change you know, from a neuropsych standpoint, changes in mood and thinking, insomnia, hyperglycemia, specifically postprandial hyperglycemia, impaired wound healing, which is already an issue in a lot of our patients, um, thin and fragile skin, increased risk of bleeding, which is an issue with, in terms of drug-drug interactions, looking at some of the other things that they're taking, muscle weakness over time, osteoporosis, and potentially even fractures. So for that reason, you know, we really should exercise caution 
when using corticosteroids in some of these patient populations. So those with diabetes, specifically uncontrolled diabetes, um, where, when they're on the inpatient side, this is less of an issue because we're monitoring all of these things and we're able to treat them. But when they go home, some of our patients certainly are better than others, but not all of them are monitoring as frequently as they should. They're certainly not titrating their insulin you know, as closely as we would. So just something to be aware of and something to educate them on as well, because the ones that are doobies and monitoring their blood glucose like they should are often very distressed when their blood glucose goes up, when they were previously very well managed. So just educating them that that is a potential side effect. Those that have some sort of serious psychiatric history, heart failure, adrenal suppression, and are immunocompromised patients. So in terms of the adrenal suppression, the question often comes up as to when you taper a patient that has been on steroids. This says 10 to 14 days. Usually I stick with the 14 days. So if they're on a steroid for two weeks or longer, usually I will taper them at that point. Then we have our buddies, the opioids. So opioids we know work in multiple receptors within the CNS, the mu receptor being the biggie that's responsible for their analgesic activity. Um, For pure opioid agonists, our traditional opioids, there's really no ceiling ceiling dose in terms of the analgesia, but as the dose increases, we know so does the incidence of adverse effects, unfortunately. And as Jessica will be talking about in a few minutes here, the CDC and the VA guidelines were published, you know, in the last several years, outlining the use of opioids in chronic pain. So the receptors, the mu, kappa, and delta are the ones that we are probably the most familiar with, and we get analgesia from all but the zeta receptors. There are different subtypes of receptors that exist and exert different clinical effects. I've heard recently that there are up to 25 different subtypes of the mu receptor. Mu1 is responsible for analgesia, mu2 for respiratory depression. We know there are agonists, partial agonists, antagonists. So our morphine, fentanyl, oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, uh, methadone, et cetera, are all agonists. Buprenorphine, nalbufene, and butorphanol are partial agonists. And then our naloxone and naltrexone are our antagonists. Um, It's important to be aware, you know, there are certain combination products on the market. For instance, naltrexone bupropion for weight loss and the naltrexone injectable suspension for patients with alcohol dependence. So just being aware of what our patients are taking because they may be on, say, this weight loss product but coming to your pain management clinic. So knowing those things is important in coming up with your strategy to treat the patient's pain. Opioid metabolism, again, we're not going to spend a whole heck of a lot of time on this, but the one thing I wanted to mention, um, and I think we, if you came to our pain terminology session this morning at the crack of dawn at 7 a.m., um, it's knowing the metabolism and having a general understanding of this is really helpful in terms of monitoring because we know what all of these guidelines are recommending now is getting things like urine drug screens or tox screens, and we need to know what metabolites we're looking for in a patient on a given drug. So for instance, if a patient was on oxycodone, we should see oxymorphone in their urine. 
If we don't, we're going to want to know why. So, ha you know, you don't have to be a, a chemist or a, you know, pharmacologist to understand these things. There's uh, several good images on Google if you look up opioid metabolism that show pretty extensive breakdowns and really visually represent what you should be seeing. Um, and certainly there are some variances in the actual tox screen that's being used and what the cutoff points are and other institution-specific things, but it's really important to have a general understanding of this. Now, opioids are responsible for something like 8.5% of medication-related fatalities. This was 2015 numbers. And we know that there are certain populations that are at greater risk for experiencing some of these things. So patients with sleep apnea and sleep-disordered breathing, our pregnant patients, those with hepatic or renal dysfunction, um, if they're age greater than 65, if they have some sort of mental health or substance use disorder, and if they have a history of a non-fatal overdose. So just some things to take into account. There are multiple tools available to help assess a patient's risk related to opioids. Naloxone we know is available as intranasal, intramuscular injections for ambulatory and outpatient use. Certainly we use it in the inpatient setting as well. Um, intranasally, two milligrams or four milligrams in individual spray dosage forms. Um, we'll often recommend that patients always have two on hand in case one is used. Um, intramuscularly available in 0.4 milligrams and two milligram single dose auto injectors. And they can be administered really with training by anyone with a suspected overdose. Um, and that's really a lot of what's behind community outreach efforts to help combat the opioid epidemic, um, not really getting to the root of the problem, but at least helping people not die. So certainly something that can be done really with pretty minimal training um, on the outpatient side. And a lot of states are allowing them to be administered without a prescription. There are, there's also some that talk to you. Yeah. And will walk you right yes. through the process, which makes it super easy yes. to use these. Like an EpiPen, kind yeah. of, yeah. Um, okay, and I said that without a prescription. Now, when it comes to immediate release versus extended release opioids, and there's very little times where we should start with an extended release opioid. Our initial therapy should almost always include the use of an immediate release formulation. The extended release formulations can certainly be very helpful and beneficial for patients that are routinely using their immediate release preparation. They're getting good pain relief. They're on a stable dose. They're not experiencing any kind of adverse effects or severe adverse effects that are impacting their quality of life. And again, they're on a stable dose and have been for an appropriate period of time. So we have a good idea of their opioid needs and then can transition them to an extended release formulation to make it a little bit more convenient for them so they're not having to dose multiple times throughout the day. Um, and then immediate release and extended release preparation use should be reevaluated for safety and efficacy periodically or based on your state's guidelines or institution-specific guidelines, certainly. Now, there are some times when we need to rotate a patient from one opioid to another opioid. 
And, you know, there's evidence in a lot of different patient populations, but a lot of fairly substantial evidence in the cancer patient population where rotation can be beneficial after a period of time. There are some uh, retrospective trials looking at opioid rotation and non-cancer pain as well, um, but really not enough to make a recommendation. But this is certainly something that we do frequently. This is the new, um, this is a shameless shout out to the new second edition of the Opioid Conversion Calculation book, which is available here for purchase, not here, but at this conference. Um, and so this is the new chart. And really the difference here is the hydroborphone calculation. So going from, you know, two of parenteral to five, and the data suggesting that um, one milligram of parenteral hydromorphone is equivalent to around 12 of oral morphine. And those are probably the biggies. It's not as easy to do the math as we know. It's not the 10 to 30 anymore, but certainly in our minds, we can still do the 10 to 30. This is not, you know, set in stone here. It's really just a guide. Incomplete cross-tolerance. So what is this all about? So this results from the differences in the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics between the various opioids. And again, the use of these dose or equianalgesic charts should be utilized to transition the patient from one opioid to another. But again, it is a starting point. So we need to account when we're going from one opioid to a different opioid, so not going from you know, one formulation of an opioid to the same opioid, but going to a different one, accounting for that incomplete cross-tolerance and adjusting the dose accordingly. Um, and then, of course, as we'll see here in a second, we have to use extra caution when we're doing any kind of calculations pertaining to methadone. So opioid conversion, this is where we're converting the opioid total daily dose to an equivalent oral morphine dose or to an equivalent dose of another opioid. Like I mentioned, it's important that we're accounting for incomplete cross-tolerance, but with that, we also have to take into account the relative level of analgesia. So is the patient's pain controlled? Is it vastly uncontrolled? So if the patient's experiencing adequate pain control, you can reduce the dose by anywhere between 25 to 50%. I typically go with around a third. Um, you can, if the patient is experiencing diminished pain control or their pain is it's still a 10 out of 10, you can decrease by less. So you can either decrease not at all if they still are having severely uncontrolled pain or by around 25%. You're going to convert to the new opioid and adjust the dosing based on the available formulation. So what's available commercially and then monitoring, of course, for pain control, um, for efficacy and toxicity after the conversion. Like I mentioned, Conversion to methadone is a whole other beast and probably could be its own lecture in and of itself. I think it has been in years past. Um, and a lot of the reason for this is that it's, it just acts differently than the other opioids. So it has a highly variable half-life. As you can see here, anywhere between 7 to 59 hours. I mean, that is a huge variance. Um, and there are multiple conversion charts that exist in the literature. Shown on the right are just four of those, um, but really there are a ton of different conversions in the literature. 
This is from the University of Maryland Graduate Schools, which we have a graduate right here of the Masters in Palliative Care program. And this is their, um, on one of their promotional cards. It's a laminated pocket card that is very nice, but on the back of it, so on the front it has the equianalgesic conversion chart. On the back is methadone guidance, which is very helpful. So here the recommended dosing, this is showing um, based on the total daily dose of oral morphine equivalents. Um, so you can see here, but really just here for your reference. It's a nice guide. Shameless plug, check out the also booth. Also shameless plug, check Go out, check the, out booth. the booth later. Yes. Uh, moving on to our tricyclic antidepressants. So the mechanism of action here is the re inhibition of the reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin and inhibiting the sodium channel, sodium channel action potentials. Um, the interesting thing here, the antidepressant effect and the neuropathic pain analgesic effects are independent. So we need higher dosing and longer treatment time for the antidepressant effect um, versus the neuropathic effect. We know that with the TCAs, there is a lot of cardiovascular risk. So with that, we need to use caution in our patients with a history of some sort of underlying cardiac arrhythmia or in our patients that are greater than 65 years of age. TCAs come in two flavors. We have our tertiary amines and we have our secondary amines. The secondary amines tend to be a lot better tolerated. They're less sedating. They have less cardiovascular risk, less hypotension. Um, so generally, unless there's a compelling indication to use a tertiary amine, for instance, a patient that also has insomnia where you would want a more sedating medication, I tend to stick with the secondary amines. Anticholinergic side effects that we're seeing with these medications um, sedation, dry mouth, urinary retention, constipation, uh, postural hypotension, and then potentially um, arrhythmias or seizures as well. Then we have our SNRIs, which exactly as the name implies, they are selective norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitors. The dosing in this case, in contrast to the TCAs, is generally higher when we're treating neuropathic pain compared to when we're treating depression. Um, the one thing to note with these, especially with venlafaxine, is that withdrawal syndromes can occur if patients are discontinued abruptly, um, and it can be pretty brutal for patients. So just to encourage them to take the medication as directed, not to discontinue it without consulting their healthcare provider or else they will experience these symptoms. So anxiety, irritability, headache, paresthesias, nervousness, and sometimes it can occur even after missing a dose or two. So something to educate our patients about. And with these, caution should be exercised in our patients that have some sort of hepatic dysfunction, uncontrolled hypertension, or cardiovascular disease. What about SSRIs? So there was a Cochrane review back in 2007 that reviewed the literature regarding a lot of the antidepressants. So the tricyclics, the SSRIs, and the SNRIs. The TCAs and our SNRI venlafaxine had data the greatest amount of data to support their use in neuropathic pain and really limited evidence as would be expected to suggest that SSRIs are effective in managing neuropathic pain. They were certainly better tolerated than the TCAs, um, mainly related to their side effect profile, but they were not nearly as effective.
Now, when it comes to chronic pain, there were 36 trials included in a review of SSRIs looking at the management of chronic pain. They reviewed data on nine SSRIs, including citalopram, fluoxetine, and others. 25 of the studies reported a significant effect regarding chronic pain outcomes, but only two of these trials were really well-conducted trials with low risk of bias. So take that with a grain of salt. We certainly do not use these regularly in the arena of pain management unless the patient has concomitant depression or some other indication, generalized anxiety disorder, where we would be using these medications. Now, our anticonvulsants, the biggies that we use most frequently are gabapentin and pregabalin, certainly. Others have really had mixed results regarding their efficacy in neuropathic pain, valproic acid, phenytoin, and of course, carbamazepine, which is used first line for the treatment of trigeminal neuralgia, but generally less frequently in other types of neuropathic pain. For gabapentin and pregabalin only, there's pretty good evidence or second-tier evidence for the efficacy in painful diabetic neuropathy and post-herpetic neuralgia. Really little evidence and no judgment could be made about the efficacy of valproic acid, low-quality evidence, um, and likely subject to a number of biases, overestimating the effects of carbamazepine. And reasonable quality evidence exists indicating little or no effect for these three medications here. Now, local anesthetic, so this is really our lidocaine, works by membrane stabilization of the sodium channels, preventing that depolarization and signal transduction that we talked about on the pain pathway slide. Used for a variety of indications, but typically acutely for local um, anesthesia or analgesia for procedures. So it can be given topically in a cream, ointment, patch, etc. We're all very familiar with the lidocaine patches, I'm sure. Uh, it can be given intradermally. For instance, you know, for a procedure, we know it's done a lot with stitches and things like that, um, wound care and then it can be given IV. And the patches really are only indicated for the management of post-herpetic neuralgia, although I'm sure if your institutions are anything like mine, we tend to slap a lidocaine patch on everything you can possibly imagine, but it is really not indicated for that. So I think a lot of that is a great placebo effect, but probably little actual efficacy. Um, what do we have here? So, you know, some information on allergies really here for your uh, reference. Adverse effects that we're worried about, you know, they tend, because it is a class 1B antiarrhythmic, a lot of the concerns are from a cardiovascular standpoint. So especially with the IV infusions, depending on your institution, I've seen places as conservative as requiring it be administered in an ICU setting, which I think is a little bit overkill at the doses that we're using for pain management. Um, but I most frequently seeing it being administered in, you know, at least in a tele-unit. Skeletal muscle relaxant. So this is a hot topic, and I think this has been a lecture in years past. Yes. Did you give that lecture? 
Yes, you did. Yes, this is a hot topic. Um, So multiple medications fall under this umbrella or this general taxonomy of skeletal muscle relaxants. There are certain agents, you know, it's important to understand the differences. This is outside the realm of this presentation, but between um, muscle spasms and spasticity, that's a big piece. Um, Certain agents are approved for muscle spasticity, so baclofen through its activity on GABA, tizanidine through its activity at the alpha-2 receptors, and others, sadly for them, stand out for reasons other than their indication. So cyclobenzaprine and orphenadrine regarding their anticholinergic effects, chlorzoxazone for its potential hepatotoxicity, and carisoprodol or SOMA is the brand name, and meprobamate for its potential for abuse. Now, the one thing, and I don't know if I've included this here. No, I haven't, so I'll say it, is that a lot of these are really only indicated for the acute use, you know, acute skeletal muscle relaxation. Patients should not be started on cyclobenzaprine and continued until the end of time. There is really no indication for this. And if, you know, doing a solid med rec when they come in, whether it's to your clinic or to the, in the inpatient setting, asking them, you know, when this medication was started, who started it, how long they've been taking it. If they say, I've been on it for the past five years, and well, quite frankly, I don't know whether it's helping or not, I think that's certainly a line in the sand where we can get rid of this medication. Capsaicin. So how this one works is through stimulation of the TRPV1 receptor in order to deplete substance P from the periphery. Um, Indications specifically include neuropathic pain associated with post-herpetic neuralgia, arthritis, and musculoskeletal pain. There are a ton of different topical formulations. They come in, you know, creams and ointments and rollerballs and patches and all kinds of things. And then there is an 8% prescription patch that has to be administered in a office setting. And patients have to be pre-medicated prior to receiving the prescription patch. So that kind of speaks for itself in terms of the process. Patients, you know, I've had a few that have undergone or received the, it's called the Cutenza patch, um, with fairly decent effect, but they're like, I never want to do that again because it was a fairly traumatic experience. Um, But certainly available in less severe concentrations over the counter. The one really important thing to note from a patient counseling standpoint is that, you know, unlike our other topicals, which can kind of be used PRN whenever the pain strikes, you know, they're out gardening all weekend and their back is really hurting. They can certainly use, you know, Icy Hot or Bengay, menthol, methyl salicylate on an as-needed basis. But when it comes to capsaicin, consistency and adherence are key because if they're not using it regularly, then the substance B builds back up and is no longer depleted. So that's a really important point. So sometimes patients will use it a couple times and say, well, it's not really helping. Well, that's because it takes time to really reach its peak therapeutic effect. And once they reach that effect, they've got to continue using it to maintain that effect. So a good patient counseling point there. And, you know, it is a cousin of the hot chili pepper. That is where it's derived from. So obviously local irritation, redness, warmth, all of those types of things are the most common side effects that we're seeing. 
And always <clears throat> wear gloves or wash your hands after totally. you know educating on that because the last thing you want to do is get that stuff in your eyeball. Yes, I think uh, Dr. McPherson Sr. over there had a patient <laughs> once who uh, used capsaicin and then told her that she inserted a tampon without washing her hands in between. And I'm pretty sure it's safe to say this patient will never forget that. Yes, so, uh, you know, another thing patients ask is, okay, well, I'm supposed to wash my hands after I use it. Well, what if I'm using it for osteoarthritis of the hands? That's quite a predicament. So what you do is you apply it, you wait about 30 minutes or so, and then enough at that point has been absorbed that you can go ahead and wash your hands. Now, when it comes to the miscellaneous agents, there, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of things that fall into this kind of catch-all here. We have ketamine, which, you know, as I mentioned, there's a whole lecture on this, so be sure to check that out if you're interested. It's an NMDA receptor antagonist. It's a really good option for managing opioid-induced hyperalgesia um, and neuropathic pain. Zaconitide is another one, certainly not used as often, um, but binding to those N-type calcium channels in the primary afferent neurons. And then Botox um, is another one indicated for migraine, not just wrinkles. Um, and then cannabinoids, which we're learning more and more about given uh, the relaxation, so to speak, of the regulatory climate. So being approved for use in more and more states. And hopefully with that, we'll see an increase in the research and the literature that comes out of that. So putting it all together, this is really just here for your reference, looking at the type of pain, so nociceptive, somatic, and visceral, neuropathic pain, the ways patients could potentially describe the pain, and then the types of analgesics that we're using to manage it. Now we know that with increased age comes effects on the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So advanced age leads to physiologic changes which can impact both PK and PD. So from a pharmacokinetic standpoint, decreased total body water and lean muscle mass, increased adipose tissue. Um, we know that can certainly be a factor in, you know, when we're talking about things that are highly lipid-soluble, like our fentanyl patches, certainly. Um, pharmacodynamic changes and increased risk potentially of sedation from our CNS depressants in our elderly patients, which, of course, opioids, benzodiazepines are certainly two of those that we worry about. And then gender can also play a role. So there can be multiple pharmacokinetic differences between males and females. So males tend to have increased BMI and total body water versus females, sadly. We tend to have increased adipose tissue. Um, and pregnancy, even sadder for me, can alter this even further. So metabolism can also be affected by gender. Um, we have greater activity with the CYP1A and the UDP transferase in males versus greater activity of CYP2D6 and 3A in females. Now, whether or not these are, are really clinically significant and would require you to chain, you know, alter dosing, probably not. Um, certainly the pharmacokinetic difference is sometimes less so the metabolic effects. Ethnicity and genetic effects on PK, this is something that we have 
fairly good data on, and Dr. Jeff Feudin is, is probably one of the leading experts in this area. Um, so we know there are differences among ethnic groups in drug uh, metabolizing enzymes, drug transporter proteins that could potentially result in pharmacokinetic variability. And races that have been identified as having these various allelic differences or frequencies include the Asian, African, Middle Eastern, and European patient populations. There can be some differences there. And then our patients sensitive to multiple medications may benefit from some type of genetic screening to see what's going on here. And that brings us, oh, we have one, one last slide. So, Again, you know, continuing the differences with regard to ethnicity and the genetic effects on pharmacokinetics, we know that there are differences in our cytochrome P450 enzymes, and these play a huge role in the metabolism of many of the medications that we're using. So we know that patients can be ultra-rapid, extensive, intermediate, or poor metabolizers. Um, and there, in this table one, are some examples of the various allelic combinations that we can see in these patients with the various um, metabolizer statuses. And then, so for instance, you know, CYP1A, cyclobenzaprine, amitriptyline, 2D6, tramadol, oxycodone, duloxetine, 3A, venlafaxine, buprenorphine, and fentanyl potentially can be implicated. And that brings us to the second half of our presentation, uh, getting to some of the pain management guidelines. So we've learned a lot about what we can use, and we just want to spend a few minutes going over what different organizations say about when to use those different therapeutics that we've talked about. So um, there's a lot on a lot of these slides. I'm, I'm not going to try to tell you guys all of this stuff. You have the slides available to you to refer back to them if you need to, but I want to go over some high-level things um, and then get to some cases at the end and get some uh, participation. So the first... <clears throat> guideline that I want to talk about is from the American College of Physicians Clinical Practice Guideline on Non-Invasive Treatments for Acute, Subacute, and Chronic Low Back Pain. So that's going to be the next three slides. Um, the first topic is acute or subacute. So they looked at acetaminophen, NSAIDs, skeletal muscle relaxants, and corticosteroids, and they came up with some recommendations. So after four weeks, they found that there was really no difference in using acetaminophen or placebo for acute or subacute low back pain. Small improvements with NSAIDs, um, and then again, small improvements with skeletal muscle relaxants, and this is another one where the guidelines all recommend short-term courses of skeletal muscle relaxants. They're not recommended long-term. So the longer someone's on them, the less, the less chance there is that they're still actually working. And then <clears throat> corticosteroids. This one you're going to see a little bit of different information about as we get through the guidelines. So some guidelines say that, yes, there is some benefit on intraarticular or IM, um, <clears throat> excuse me, injections or five-day courses of bursts, but for this guideline, they really found no difference. So the following recommendations were made. Um, given that most patients with acute or subacute low back pain improve over time regardless of treatment, clinicians and patients should select non-pharmacologic treatment with superficial heat, massage, acupuncture, or spinal manipula manipulation um, over pharmacologic therapies. Now, we've also talked about the fact that not all insurance companies want to pay for all of those things. So if you have to switch to pharmacologic therapy, um, NSAIDs, skeletal muscle relaxers 
are recommended short-term to treat that type of pain. For chronic low back pain, um, we have a little bit of other information. So NSAIDs, again, we have small to moderate evidence that it can improve the, the chronic low back pain. Um, opioids, this is where opioids might come into play for chronic low back pain. Um, in this guideline, they didn't really have a clear difference between IR versus ER, but what I, in terms of pain control or functionality, but what I will add to that as a caveat is, for the most part, you should start someone on an IR opioid. ER should not be our first choice. Um, and then skeletal muscle relaxants, like we've both mentioned, there's not really evidence that supports long-term use of those medications. Sometimes I'll see them used in a patient with chronic low back pain, but it's acute on chronic, right? So yes. there's some sort of precipitating event. They tweaked their back somehow. They did something to it in, you know, superimposed on this chronic low back pain. So then, you know, there may be a, rel you know, decent amount of data regarding their use. But again, that's technically acute pain, acute just superimposed yeah. on chronic. So again, should be limited to a short course. And so it's kind of like a rescue. If, if you're acutely flared, we can treat it as acute pain. But then once that flare goes down, we need to revert back to what we would do for chronic pain. Um, more information about chronic low back pain. We talked about antidepressants. Um, and there really wasn't a difference found between TCAs and SNRIs. Um, duloxetine was associated with some improvement in pain intensity and function compared to placebo, which is promising. Um, and then again, not, not really good sufficient evidence for others, other modalities for pain control. Um, now, when we're talking about chronic pain for cancer survivors. So these next few slides are from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. They're the clinical practice guidelines for management of chronic pain in adult cancer survivors. So just because the cancer is gone, that doesn't mean automatically the pain is gone as well. There can be residual pain. And the way we treat this pain can be a little bit different than non-cancer related pain. So, you know, because we have so many options for treating cancer anymore, more and more people are surviving the disease. Approximately 14 million people with a history of cancer are still living in the U.S., and two-thirds of those individuals are surviving at least five years after diagnosis. So we're looking at a longer time frame than what we used to historically see. Um, and so what ASCO recommends is that they, they suggest non-opioid analgesics, for chronic pain first, and you'll notice that that's kind of a theme. Most of these guidelines are going to recommend non-opioids up front. And then um, if there is an indication for an opioid, to try that afterwards. So looking at NSAIDs again, acetaminophen, duloxetine as an antidepressant, and to relieve pain, and then gabapentin and pregabalin are two medications that are in the anticonvulsant category. Um, and this pain that re that res that still kind of sticks around after a patient is through with their treatment and considered cancer-free, it can become, be from, you know, just the chemotherapy causes damage, and that damage is not reversible, and we need to treat the pain associated with it. Or the hormonal therapy or radiation, long-term effects of radiation, or surgery even, that can turn into chronic pain. So we have lots of reasons why some patients with cancer can end up with chronic pain. 
Topical analgesics have a role to play here too. Again, if the patient can point to where their pain is. We don't want them slathering it all over their body. We want to be able to localize the pain for that. Um, <clears throat> again, corticosteroids are great <clears throat> for acute pain with patients with cancer. We use them a lot. <clears throat> but the long-term effects, the <clears throat> I'm sorry, I am getting over <clears throat> a cold. The, the risks, long-term risks associated with corticosteroid use don't outweigh the benefits that you're going to get from long-term steroid use. So we like to get patients off of steroids. Once they're finished with their therapy and they're considered in their survivorship stage, we need to taper them off those steroids and get them onto something else. We need to constantly be assessing risk as well. What are we looking at? What are the side effects that we could look at? What are the the, the potential impacts on their life that they could be experiencing, assess that. Is it important to think about changing therapy or continue along what we're currently doing because their risks are low? Um, so really, a lot of these guidelines are also going to emphasize risk assessment. Risk assessment is huge. And it's not just opioid risk assessment. It's risk assessment for any medication that we're going to use to treat someone's pain. <coughs> Cannabis again. So every state that has relaxed their legislation on cannabis is doing it a little bit differently. Um, I'm from a state where it has recently been allowed into practice as a medicinal, med, uh, medicinal marijuana. So I'm from Ohio. We have medical marijuana available to us, not recreational, but it's limited. So being familiar with your state's guidelines on what you may and may not use medical marijuana for because there are, you know, we're, we're learning more and more and more about the medication, that there are some benefits that we can use this for that patients really appreciate um, for symptom control. So familiarizing yourself, if you're in a state that is, that is allowing marijuana to be used medicinally, familiarizing yourself with for what conditions, what are the available preparations. Um, for example, in Ohio, it's available vaporized as an inedible and in tinctures. But that varies from state to state. So it's not, there's not a lot of consistency across the board. But if you're familiar with it, it could be an additional tool in your tool belt. Um, and then trials of opioids. So for patients that are surviving cancer, we don't want opioids to be our first choice. But if we've worked through all of these other steps and we're finding that nothing's really working, a trial of an opioid is appropriate, again, making sure we're assessing risk. Is it the most appropriate thing when we take risk into account as well? And then if you find that it is, please try, because it could be the thing that allows someone to function more. So the CDC guidelines. The CDC came out with some guidelines, and um, we're going to talk more about those in another session as well. But the CDC came up with some guidelines, just some recommendations. Again, non-pharmacologic and non-opioids are preferred for chronic pain. Um, they did carve out cancer pain. So they're not saying non-pharmacologic and non-opioids are preferred for patients experiencing cancer pain, but for those types of pain other than that. So chronic pain, only consider an opioid if the benefit outweighs the risk. Um, setting goals. They're really, they're really emphasizing setting goals with a patient, making sure they understand no matter what we do, we might not be able to get all of your pain to go away. We might need to use multiple modes of treatment to get your pain to a level where you feel as though you can function. Um, and making sure they also understand if we get to a point and you're telling me that 
this opioid really isn't doing much for you, we need to have a plan in place for how we're going to stop it because we don't need to continue a medication that's not giving you any benefit. But having those conversations up front rather than waiting until you reach that point in therapy to have the conversation so that your patients are prepared and can participate in those conversations. And again, you're going to see this on almost every slide, reassessing risks. Always reassessment, look at risks, look at benefits. Are we to a place where we need to consider starting to decrease doses or are we in a stable place? What's going on with the patient? Um, remembering that these guidelines are not meant to be black and white. They're meant to be applied to each patient individually. Like I said before, immediate release opioids should be used first, and the CDC guidelines back that up. Um, methadone and transdermal fentanyl should not be considered at an early point. Patients should be opioid tolerant before you start thinking about using methadone or transdermal fentanyl. Um, they emphasize using the lowest dose and then titrating from there until you get to a place where the, the patient's pain is in a manageable place. Um, and then reassessing. So they've, they've put in some cutoffs. So 50 morphine milligram equivalents or MMEs is a, is a place where you should pause and ask some questions. Reevaluate your patient's response to the opioid if you're using it. Um, Find out if they're experiencing a bunch of side effects. Are they really finding that it's benefiting them as much as they thought it would? Um, and then continuing down the path if after that reassessment it's deemed to be appropriate to continue. Um, 90 then is another cutoff, so 90 MMEs, and that's a place that you should have a justified decision for why you are continuing to titrate. So documentation is key there. It doesn't mean you have to stop at 90. It just means... Make sure you write down the reason why you are going to move past 90 um, and what you've done up to that point to try to curb that, that dose. So making sure you document. Go ahead. Strategies that you've employed, you know, potential opioid sparing strategies, the multimodal approach and integrated approach. So think the other tools that you're pulling from to not just rely solely on the opioids themselves, but the other things that you're doing. So just really covering your butt and you know making sure that all of this is thoroughly documented is really important in the climate that we're practicing in. And then if we look at acute pain. <clears throat> so the CDC had some guidance about for acute pain as well, and they put some durations out there. So generally for acute pain, we would hope that that pain would start to resolve within seven days. Um, and if it's not, that's okay. But again, we need to document what's going on. Why hasn't it resolved? Did they re-injure something? Is it just lasting longer regardless of all of the other things that we're doing? So it's not a hard stop. Um, and then continuing to reevaluate. So if we need to move past those seven days, Continued frequent reevaluation. So they're talking about every one to four weeks after initiation or dose changes, and then every three months, and then evaluate for okay, we're at three months here. This really should be starting to be well on its way to resolve. Do we need to start to taper if someone's made it to three months on an opioid for acute pain? Um, I also want to highlight that these guidelines, I don't think they were ever meant to be a way for, for people to not prescribe opioids. It was just kind of, 
When you're going to prescribe opioids, please make sure you're assessing risk and doing it safely and really documenting why you are continuing to increase doses and why we're moving past these couple of cutoff points and why you might have someone on it for a longer duration. So um, they weren't meant to necessarily be black and white. They were meant to be um, some guiding documents, some, some suggestions for safe use of opioids for pain management. And you'll recall that three-month cutoff is important. We mentioned, I think it was in the first few slides, that definition of chronic pain. So persisting beyond the point of expected normal tissue healing or lasting longer than three months. So that's really where acute pain becomes chronic in nature and where these guidelines would, would apply. And they also, so again, more from the CDC, they suggest using naloxone rescue therapy when you have a patient that's on more than 50 MMEs. So just explaining to them what it's for, it's not a stigma. I see, I encounter people that are like, why would you give this to me? I'm not improperly using my medication. And it's, it's not that I think that they're improperly using their medication. We just want everybody to be safe. So if for some reason they become overly sedated and their family members are curious or concerned that they are over-medicated, that they have a way to help them um, before the ambulance gets there. So um, talking about that and not just saying, all right, here's your two prescriptions, but having a conversation about why they're getting two prescriptions and not just the prescription for their opioid. Um, Speaking of that, real quick, I had a patient that we had started on methadone, and the policy in the outpatient clinic was that for any patient that was being prescribed methadone, not just all opioids in general, they would receive this naloxone prescription. Well, the patient calls me the next day and said, so I picked up that medication that you recommended for pain, and but it, it looks different. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And she's like, it's spelled N-A-L-O-L. Like, oh, dear God, that is not for the pain. Um, but clearly, you know, I, I had spoken with our, our physician who was seeing this patient in clinic and given my recs, and I hadn't had a chance to actually speak with the patient. But that point was apparently not made very clear. So I had to clarify that the patient would not have had such good pain relief from the naloxone. So no. glad I was able to clarify that. And finally, using the state prescription drug monitoring programs. I think now all 50 states have a version of this. Um, not that this should be, again, the end-all, be-all of whether or not you provide a patient with an opioid. It gives you an idea of what their history looks like. But this can still be wrong. I had a patient where... We, it looked as though they were inappropriately filling and, and you know, going to multiple physicians um, and early fills. And it was actually that something happened and they had to change physicians and they also had to change pharmacies. I and mean, it took some digging to get this way, but that one pharmacy forgot to reverse the claim after the other pharmacy billed it. And so on paper... Through the PDMP, it looked as though we were like, what is even happening right now? And we go in and we talk to them about it, and they're like, what are you talking about? We didn't do that. We're not doing this. And so we started making phone calls, and it turns out, you know, those things had to be reversed so that it came back off of there. So it's, it's not 100% accurate all the time. So trust but verify, right? Make the phone call if you need to make the phone call so that you know you're doing the right thing by your patient. Um, 
Urine drug screenings, again, you can you do this periodically, scheduled and or unscheduled, um, or not scheduled or unscheduled, but notified versus not notified, so the surprise one if you need to. Um, also making sure that you understand how to interpret the results of the urine drug screen when you use it. So having a copy of that metabolism chart that we talked about earlier, it by no means do I expect anybody to memorize all of that stuff. But if you have it as a quick reference so that when you get your results and you have that, you can be like, okay, this does make sense. The lab yeah, knowing what lab you're using, what's their threshold, what are they, you know, what's going to fall through the cracks. And so understanding that having a buddy in the lab I have my lab buddy that I know I can call and say please help me I don't know what some of this means but I know you do so can you please help me um, and then doing the best to avoid dismissing patients just because of a UDT because there are false positives there are also false negatives so again trusting but verifying the results of the tests that we use um, the CDC recommends avoiding benzodiazepines whenever possible. It doesn't mean it's contraindicated to do so, but again, additive sedative effect. So if we can avoid a benzodiazepine in a patient that is also taking an opioid, that's the best case scenario. Um, and then also they're suggesting to offer to arrange um, or arranging access for patients with substance use disorders methadone or buprenorphine combined with behavioral therapies. So still offering what patients need so we can treat their pain, but we get them the extra therapies of the support they need to manage that substance use disorder. That's huge. So let's talk through the VA. So the VA actually has quite extensive guidelines, um, and they have a lot in their guidelines. So um, they are highly recommending non-opioids. Um, they really try to avoid long-term opioid use. Um, and then they want, if a patient has chronic pain, the VA is actually really good since they're a closed system about offering those other non-pharmacologic therapies for their patients. So their patients have access to a lot more through the VA. So you can try, they can really try hard to not use chronic opioids because they can offer physical therapy. I know the VA in Columbus, they have an acupuncturist there they have, I mean, they'll send, so I'm, I'm a veteran, and they sent me home with a TENS unit that I have in my house. So they really equip their patients well to succeed in their pain management programs. They have pain psychologists to talk through all of the other existential parts of the pain experience as well. So it's really nice. Um, they also recommend if someone is on long-term, you know, always looking for that opportunity to decrease the dose or start a taper and see how far you can get before we have to maintain the dose again. So constantly trying to make sure we're always on the best dose. What's the best thing we can do for you? Um, they also recommend close monitoring for patients with untreated substance use disorder and advocating for therapy and treatments for those patients as well. The VA has a lot to say about, about pain management. Um, it can seem a little overwhelming. So they actually recommend against. So for them, it's not a avoid when possible. It's a please don't do this type deal. So they recommend, using, they recommend against using benzodiazepines and opioids together. So if someone's on both, they're going to try really hard to get 
a patient tapered off of one or the other of those medications. Um, and then they were also, again, they recommend against a lot of long-term opioid therapy for patients younger than 30 years of age um, because that age population has a higher risk of opioid use disorder. So they monitor those patients much closer than patients that are older than that. They highlight risk mitigation strategies, informed consent, um, and then also assessing suicide risk because when patients have a high risk of suicide and also a prescription for opioids in their home, that might not be the best recipe to have. So if, you have, if they have someone that has a high risk of suicide, they may really think twice about even putting an opioid in their home because of the risk of overdose. Um, evaluating risk versus benefit again. Excuse me. Um, prescribing the lowest dose. Again, that aligns with the CDC guidelines. They recommend the lowest dose possible for the shortest duration. Um, frequent monitoring. So they kind of line up there. Um, they also use 90 milligrams of morphine equivalents as a cutoff. Um, and Again, against prescribing long-acting opioids for acute pain, I think anybody in here would agree with that. We don't want to use long-acting opioids for acute pain. That should be reserved for chronic pain, not responsive to other therapies or chronic cancer-related pain. Um, and then they recommend you know, continued monitoring for when's the best time to taper, trialing tapers, and getting patients to the lowest possible dose. They do recommend, though, that this is an individualized process. So they have lots of things that they're saying, do this, don't do this, but they do back that up with, but this is still patient-specific. So making sure that you are developing a patient-specific treatment plan for that person sitting in front of you today. This doesn't necessarily have to be a black and white. This is applied to everybody. So there's room for some movement for patient-specific treatments. Um, they recommend interdisciplinary care, and that is huge. That's, that can really be beneficial if you have all of these other disciplines that can chime in and provide help to a patient. You have physical therapists on board, social workers. I mean, chaplains, you can have the psychologists. You have acupuncturists. When you have all of those chiropractors, the VA has chiropractors employed as well. Um, when you can have all of those modalities for pain control, you can really see a lot of success for the patient getting back, getting their function back. And then again, offering medication-assisted treatment for patients that are dealing with opioid use disorder. For acute pain, they really recommend against using opioids upfront. They want you to use non-opioids, so the medications that we've talked about already, you know, acetaminophen, NSAIDs, potentially a short-term course of gabapentin might be appropriate. If if they are going to use an immediate release opioid, they again recommend a, long, a short treatment duration of three to five days. Another organization that has chimed in is the Federation of State Medical Boards. They released guidelines for the chronic use of opioid analgesics in April of 2017, and they are actually very largely consistent with the CDC guidelines that are out there um, and address patient evaluation, risk stratification, treatment plans and goal setting, um, using informed consent and treatment agreements, initiating opioids as a trial, again, a trial, see if it's going to work and then stopping it if it doesn't work, um, monitoring and adapting that trial, 
unannounced drug testing, um, consultation and referrals. So if this is a patient in a primary care office, if we get to a point where they think, you know, I really need some specialist level care, suggesting getting them a referral to a specialist um, level of care, documenting appropriately in the medical record, which that seems funny that that would need to be included in a guideline, but you've probably all come across a medical record where you're like, I don't even know what's happening right now. Where did this even come from? And the patient just tells you, well, they told me to start taking it, so I did, and I never stopped. And you can't find a trail anywhere. So really making sure you're documenting in the medical record appropriately, um, and then making sure you comply with controlled substance laws and regulations. In December of 2016, the European Pain Federation released a position paper on appropriate opioid use and chronic pain management. Um, This was targeted to primary care physicians and non-pain management specialists, and they included this wonderful, I think it's great looking, step-by-step guide to the initiation of opioid analgesia. So it can give some guidance to practitioners that aren't necessarily specialized in pain management, so they can at least start something. They can at least get the ball rolling before they call in a specialist, and maybe getting through just one or two of these steps actually does the trick. And so we have successfully treated someone's pain. Um, So it gives you a lot of guidance there on, you know, if they're suitable, what's the appropriate opioid, should it be a short, should we initiate it, and then starting at the lowest possible dose, reviewing the outcomes, and then continued reassessment. They emphasize all of those things. So what do we know about treating neuropathic pain in adults? So this is a great chart. It comes from the Lancet, um, and it's the most, most recent revision from the Special Interest Group on Neuropathic Pain, Recommendations for Pharmacotherapy of Neuropathic Pain. And you can see their list of first-line medications here, gabapentin, ER, and IR. I'm honestly mostly familiar with the IR version. I do know that the ER version is out there and can be effective. Pregabalin is also first-line recommendation. Our SNRIs, duloxetine or venlafaxine, as well as TCAs. So some weak recommendations for second-line therapy, if these are not effective, would be lidocaine patches, the high-concentration capsaicin patch, but as we learned, that might not be the most pleasant experience. Um, Tramadol would be an option here for neuropathic pain. And then third-line would be potentially a strong opioid, so you're thinking morphine, oxycodone, Um, fentanyl, or botulinum toxin for neuropathic pain, so injections of Botox. So you can treat pain, and then that area of the body would look great. Relieve the wrinkles. (laughs) There's also some guidelines out there for diabetic neuropathy. I think we'd be remiss if we don't talk about diabetic neuropathy. So the guidelines are recommending either pregabalin or duloxetine. But this doesn't mean that gabapentin is not an option as well. Um, What it does mean is that gabapentin, the the makers of gabapentin just didn't do the extra trials to have, you know, the indications and things added. For pregabalin, they did those extra steps and tests. We've had gabapentin for a long time. Clinically, we know it works for neuropathic pain. So why not try using that for diabetic peripheral neuropathy as an option as well. Um, Some insurance companies get a little funny if you jump to pregabalin first line. They're like, well, wait a minute. You haven't tried gabapentin yet, so take a step back. Um, And then you have to fail gabapentin to get pregabalin. So it might might be the most 
appropriate first-line choice anyway just to preemptively jump through the insurance hoops. And these recs are coming from the, I think it was in 2017, the yes. American Diabetes Association published a position statement on diabetic neuropathy. So that's where these recs are coming from. And we will have, I promise to leave time at the end for questions if anybody has questions. So I'm going to try to get through this, the rest of this quickly. Um, TCAs are also effective, but using a TCA for diabetic peripheral neuropathy is considered off-label, um, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. We know that they work for neuropathic pain, so it might be the most appropriate thing to do for your patient. We know they actually have the lowest number needed to treat, so they're actually the most effective, uh, potentially, but dose-limiting in terms of side effects. We've already talked about gabapentin. I jumped forward a little bit, uh, but... Because of the high risks of addiction and other complications, um, opioids aren't really recommended for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. They're not the best at treating neuropathic pain. I mean, there's, there's some evidence that say they can treat it, but they're really not the best at it. So um, this position paper recommends the other options first. If you'll remember back to that chart, it, opioids weren't until third line. So using these other options first is really the most appropriate thing to do. What about methadone? When should we use methadone? Always. All the time. No, <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite medications. I see it benefits so many people, but I'll take that back. It's not appropriate all the time, but I wish we thought of it quicker than we do sometimes. So um, if someone is only on PRN medications, they haven't really ever been compliant with their medications or they're like, you know, I don't know if any of you have experience with Coumadin. If you know you have that patient, it's like my blood just felt thinner, so I adjusted my dose. You know, so you have this non-compliance with the medications. Methadone's not the option for them. You need someone to be compliant if they're going to take methadone, um, and that's because of of the um, the way that it accumulates in the body. It, it works best if you're consistent with the use. Um, Therapy should be initiated at a low dose, less than 15 milligrams per day in divided doses. And then you can't increase these doses any more frequently than once per week because of how long it takes for the drug to reach steady state in the body. So we have to wait for it to reach steady state before we increase the dose. Um, you don't want to increase the dose by a whole lot, maybe 5 to 10 milligrams per week. Um, and then also you want to assess the risk, excuse me, for QTC prolongation. So are, do they have historical prolonged QT? Are they on other medications that are going to put them at high risk for QT prolongation? Um, and then you'll, have, you'll see some cutoffs there. So 470 in men and 480 in women. Most people start to get a little worried if they're not real familiar with methadone when you hit that 450 mark. Um, but it depends on your comfort level with methadone. Um, it's another medication that you shouldn't use in someone who has known issues with breathing while they're asleep or they're non-compliant with their CPAP machine because we don't want them to have respiratory depression while they're asleep. Um, and, and you want to always evaluate for other respiratory depressant medications. I know we were like, yay, methadone, but then when we get into all of the risks associated with it, you might be a little bit more scared, but I think we'll all still stand behind our yay methadone comment. Um, you want to make sure you are not only educating 
the patient with methadone, uh, but the family as well, because you want them to also be a second set of eyes for you when you're using this medication because of the delayed response that you can see, the delayed side effects. So their family member or spouse might notice something that they're not experiencing themselves, and they can give you a buzz and let you know, hey, we're seeing this thing. Do we need to make some adjustments? What should we do? Um, always use immediate-release opioids for breakthrough pain when you are titrating methadone because they can fall back on those. If your dose of methadone isn't necessarily where it needs to be yet, they can fall back on use some extra doses of the immediate-release opioid while we work up to an appropriate dose of methadone. I don't think I have ever recommended, maybe one time I've recommended using methadone as a PRN. It's generally my recommendation for methadone is only to use it scheduled. When I did recommend it as a PRN, it was in someone that we as a team just we really knew they were going to do what they were supposed to do. They were very compliant. They had a great support system. And it just kind of all of the cards lined up exactly how we needed them to line up to be able to recommend using methadone as a breakthrough. Um, but other than that, we generally just use other immediate release opioids um, in someone who's also using methadone. What about post-operative pain? So the next suggestions come from the Clinical Practice Guideline on the Management of Postoperative Pain. It was a collaborative effort by the American Pain Society, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, and the American Society of Anesthesiologists. So the big, big push here is managing patient expectations, making sure they understand you are about to have surgery. We are going to do something to you that is going to cause pain. So you should expect to have some pain. You're not going to wake up and miraculously have zero pain when you come out of the recovery room. So talking through what to expect and that no matter what we do, again, we can't necessarily get your pain all the way down to a zero and we might not want it to be a zero after surgery because as Alex mentioned earlier, pain can be protective. Um, so if it hurts to move too much right after you have an abdominal surgery, that's a cue to not move so much in those first couple of days. And if we are completely getting rid of that pain, someone might move more than they should and actually cause more trauma to themselves in that acute recovery period. Um, they really recommend using multimodal therapy, so physical modalities and cognitive behavioral therapies, such as guided imagery, relaxation, hypnosis, music therapy. We talked about that earlier. Um, and then intraoperative positive suggestions, which I found kind of interesting. Like, talking to them while they're asleep and saying, you got this, you can make it through this. And you know, that, that there's something to be said about that. Um, physical modalities, TENS units, um, acupuncture, again, massage, cold therapy, and then really teaching someone. The biggest thing I teach people for post-operative pain, I'll walk into a room and they're trying to cough or they're trying to take a deep breath and they're just like, I can't take a breath, I can't cough, it hurts so much. And I just say, has anyone showed you bracing? And they look at me with deer in the headlights, like, what, what does that even mean right now? And I say, if you put your pillow over your stomach when you try to cough and you push down on it, you're going to find that it doesn't hurt as much. And then they try it, and they look at me and they go, why did I have to hear this from you for the first time and my surgery was two days ago? So really having these talks with patients about things they can do on their own to manage their pain experience post-operatively can be very, very beneficial because this, this same person said, you know, I've been trying to take this PRN because I've just been, I need to cough. 
I feel like I need to have one big cough, and I haven't been able to because it hurts so much. So then next day I went in, and he's hugging the pillow, and I'm like, yes, success. All it took was a pillow. Um, more on post-operative pain. Um, systemic pharmacologic therapy does have a role here. Um, it just should be the most appropriate systemic pharmacologic therapy. It doesn't necessarily have to be an opioid. We've, we've seen a lot of good evidence with IV acetaminophen for post-operative, I think hips and knees is what we're using it in in my hospital, and we see great results, and patients are up and moving around with just a 1,000 milligram dose of IV acetaminophen after their surgery. Um, again, using local or topical therapies as appropriate, um, regional anesthesia, neuraxial therapy, um, really familiarizing yourself with the policies and procedures of your institution on what post-operative pain should look like and how it should be treated, and then if needed, transitioning to outpatient care. So make sure, making sure that that transition period is appropriate, that we bridge that gap. And if it's two weeks before we can get them into the office again, making sure they're equipped with the right amount of medication to cover that two weeks and not just only giving them seven days because that's what the CDC guidelines tell them to do. But documenting, hey, we're going to give them 14 days of medication because they're going to see me in 14 days. We will reassess at that time and determine if further prescriptions are necessary. There's also a really nice chart as part of this guideline that kind of outlines what the recommendations are based on type of surgery. Um, and this, you should have this, it should all be uploaded to the site so this is available for your reference. So let's talk about, oh, I'm running out of time very quickly, osteoarthritis of the hip. We've got some evidence about um, that, you know, using risk, risk assessment tools can be beneficial. There's also some evidence that says um, the absolute outcome score of a patient who is obese might be lower, but the patients have a similar level of satisfaction with actual surgery. So after a total hip arthroplasty, which was kind of interesting. Um, NSAIDs can be used short-term, again, for pain and function, and this is great because we can do some short-term NSAIDs and then get people up and moving around. That's really when we get the best outcomes is getting them moving quickly after that surgery happens. They do not support using glucosamine um, because it didn't really perform better than placebo for improving function. Again, these slides are all going to be available to you, so if, I, if I'm speeding up a little bit, it's because I want to get to the cases and allow you guys to answer or ask questions. Intraarticular corticosteroids can be beneficial, though, in osteoarthritis of the hip, um, but they don't necessarily recommend using intraarticular hyaluronic acid. Physical therapy, I think we've all been very aware of that. Physical therapy can really be our friend. The, the physical therapists, we should have them in our, in our court. Um, Post-operative physical therapy especially, getting people up and moving around, using that that new joint um, and getting that movement going can really be beneficial for post-surgical outcomes. And then when we talk about the knee, um, so self-management. At my hospital, we have like a knee program where patients are taught how to do different range of motion exercises and modifying things to strengthen those muscles around their knee to help their knee feel better. Um, using low-impact exercise, um, education, physical activity, and strengthening can really be beneficial for osteoarthritis of the knee. Weight loss, 
is a suggestion if a patient's BMI is greater than 25, um, and they don't recommend, they can't recommend, so it's not that they don't, it's just that they can't recommend using acupuncture. Um, and these recommendations are from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. They, they also cannot recommend using glucosamine and chondroitin. Um, they recommend oral or topical NSAIDs. So you can see I've had a lot of patients that use topical diclofenac for knee pain associated with osteoarthritis, and they have really good benefit from that. Um, and then they can't recommend or uh, recommend against the use of acetaminophen, opioids, or pain patches for symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee. So again, there's not really a recommendation for intraarticular corticosteroids like there was for the hip, um, and they don't really say one or the other about recommendations. They just can't recommend using um, hyaluronic acid for osteoarthritis of the knee. I like this little cartoon. Have you tried icing it to the gingerbread man? <laughs> Poor Gingy's knee hurts. Acute pain. Um, this comes from the American Family Physician, and this was from back in 2013. Acetaminophen, first line, due to, for the most part, short-term use. It's safe, cost-effective. NSAIDs have similar effect, um, but again, we have to take into other considerations. What are the other comorbid disease states that a patient has before we recommend an NSAID? Um, opioid combinations can be used if those others don't work, but remember, we are dose-limited in our combination products because of the acetaminophen component. And then if we're finding we can't get to an adequate dose with a combo product, that's when they would recommend switching to a pure opioid without the addition of acetaminophen in the preparation. It doesn't mean you can't continue to give it. You just have more leeway with where you can go with the dose if you're not worried about the acetaminophen. Um, there's also, they also have this great chart for the evidence rating and for what uh, medications that they would recommend. For acute pain. So that was a lot, right? We got through a lot, but yay, it's time for cases. So now we can put all of this information to the test. So we might not get through all of them, but we'll get through a few. So our first one, 38-year-old male with chronic low back pain from traumatic injury five years ago, has a significant GI bleed six months ago from overuse of NSAIDs and has required multiple transfusions. You can see the list of medications. We have pregabalin, oxycodone, and fentanyl. Pain is a six out of 10, but today the patient is saying they have a lack of energy, they're feeling hopeless, and a decrease in social activities. So based on what you've learned today, what would the best option be? Cyclobenzaprine, increase the oxycodone, initiate duloxetine, or start scheduled peroxicam. Yay, I would agree. We can get the added benefit of potential depression because it sounds like he was describing that. Case two, a 59-year-old female has chronic pain secondary to cervical post-laminectomy syndrome. Um, she's tried multiple opioids, including morphine, oxycodone, fentanyl, and failed to achieve a return to her activities of daily living, so her function has not improved. She is currently using an average of 100 milligrams of oral hydromorphone daily, we bring up methadone, and what are some of the things that we must carefully consider before we would think about initiating methadone? Medication review, all of them, not just prescription medications. Obtaining a baseline ECG, using a published conversation. I already heard I the heard answer. a D. A D, everybody concur? Bingo. D. Woo, yes. You guys are winning right now, 100% so far. Um, 
66-year-old male with chronic arthritis pain in his bilateral knees, not appropriate candidate for surgery. He's on morphine, ER, oxycodone, and phenytone because he has seizures. Um, for the past month, he's been using all of his available PRN doses as well as scheduled opioids. He doesn't like the, bill, the pill burden. It's affecting his quality of life. He wants to be converted to a single opioid. So what he are has, our yeah. options here? So what should we do? Anyone feel strongly about one of the choices? C. C? Let's see. We have a C. I hear an A. Anyone else want to chime in with something? Remember the pill burden. Oh, I just gave the answer up. Pill burden. Ooh, so we, we had one right. An A. And again, this is just, you know, it could be different if you yeah. learn more things about him. Um, so we have a, now a 29-year-old female, chronic low back pain. She's somnolent. She has increased pain. She wants more opioids. Um, there's her medication list. You have her PDMP, UDS. You're finding some things out from these two um, resources you have. What are some appropriate options? D? All of the above. I yes, like it. I can get behind that one. Um, so, in conclusion, there's a lot of evidence out there. There's lots of options. It's important to tailor this to your patient. Patient-specific is key. Um, and then applying principles of rational pharmacotherapy can really mitigate or prevent adverse effects. So if you really understand the medications that you're using and when it's the most appropriate, we can really set ourselves up for success. So if you guys have questions, we're going to stick around up here. Thanks, everyone, for Thank hanging so with much. us for the past two hours.